we come from, you know, people who are resilient too. And so when children have that um, ingrained in them as children, then they don't have to spend their whole lives searching for it. You know, we're not just educating again, you know, early childhood is a collective wraparound. We see our children holistically in their development. Bonjour, Anine. Welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lem. Miigwech for joining us. Native Lights is a place for Native folks around Minnesota to come and have conversation and talk about their gifts and how they share them with their community. And Cole, you and I have the distinct pleasure and the distinct honor to help share their stories. How are you doing, Cole? Very good, very good. Um, Just chilling. I had a question about Marvin. Is there any, like, Native education material that he's enjoyed, like, as a, as a kid, you know, not necessarily, like, right now, but, like, growing up in his toddler years or... I'm curious. Well, we read Auntie Brenda Child's Bow Wow Pow Wow. Oh, yes. Probably, like, 150 times, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so that was always nice, and it's always good for him to, like, to be able to see Ojibwe, Ojibwe Moen written down mm-hmm. for with a cool story. And cool artwork by Jonathan Thunder in that book. And the St. Paul Public Library, I mean, we're talking when he was little, little, and when we lived in St. Paul. The library had Dakota language song CDs. So they, they turned nursery rhymes into Dakota language teaching tools. So you could sing along with the head and shoulders, knees and toes, oh, yeah. and it would say the words really cool. for head and shoulders, knees and toes, <laughs> which I'm sure Marvin remembers yeah. um, in Dakota. But yeah, stuff like that, you know, both being able to read and to listen. Yeah, I think those are the, the two big things that stick out. That's really cool. Um, I asked that question because the guest we have on today is part of that world of, you know, uh, educational materials for Indigenous children and and creating a educational equity in in that uh, world. So today we're chatting with Brooke Laflo. Uh, she is a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa in North Dakota. She grew up in the Twin Cities. She's an educator and entrepreneur. As part of that, she's the founder of Nini Janis One of Ones, a social enterprise that aims at creating educational equity in early childhood for Indigenous children. And we can't wait to talk to her about that and much more. And here she is, actually. Bonjour, Brooke. Hello. Bonjour. How's it going, Brooke? I'm Leah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Leah. I think I've, um, well, I've seen your guys's, your your new stuff before. Oh, so nice. um, I'm familiar a little bit. Um, cool. But I'm doing good. I, I ended up getting, uh, I was supposed to be back in the cities today, but my partner's battery took a, a dish on him yesterday. So oh. I let him use my car to go get parts to fix his car. So now he's good, but but I'm going to leave tomorrow morning instead. Gotcha. So. Well, I appreciate it. But I'm I not in an office. I'm kind of in like a makeshift. Um, <laughs> Still sounds good. Place right now. Yeah, so, it's all good. Yeah. So yeah, uh, we'll just uh, get her going. Sounds good. So uh, Buju, Brooke, uh, could you just please introduce yourself and you know where you're joining us from? Yeah, Buju, Wagagamijing, Zipi Manadu, Quen, Dijnakaz, Mekanakwaji, and Dunjaba, Mekizina Dudem, 
Uh, my name is Brooke LaFleau. I was named after the bend in the river. My family comes from the Turtle Mountain Reservation in North Dakota, and I uh, descend from the Eagle Clan. Very nice. Um, something we always like to ask uh, as we get going, you know, how are you and your family doing during the, the pandemic? We are um, we are doing good. My both everyone works. I have a little brother that's back in school now. Um, you know, he started high school during the pandemic, which was tough for you know being high school and you know social relationships and trying to meet friends outside of his family. Um, he had a hard freshman year, but he's doing good now. And everybody's been working the whole pandemic, so we've kind of been chugging along still. And so that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Thanks. Yeah. So I guess first off, uh, could you just describe uh, the Nini Janis, uh, just how it got its start, you know, how you landed on the name and like maybe like what are the separate entities between Nini Janis and one of ones, things like that? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so Nini Janis um, is an Ojibwe word um, for loosely translates to my child. So anytime you put NI, the knee in front of something, um, it is in relationship to myself. Um, Nijanis is child. So basically um, relates to my child. Um, and we chose that word because, um, you know, everything we're doing is for our children, right? Um, and in, in relation to how we um, support our children and not just through education, but especially in early childhood, it's a, it's a wraparound. Um, it's, it's social, emotional, it's spiritual, um, it's physical, it's intellectual. Um, so how do we support our children? And Ninijanis was actually a pilot um, grant, a pilot community grant in 2019 from the Tuahe Foundation. There was three of us who had completed the Oyate program network, and we went in on a grant together um, to basically, um, it was myself, my mother, Janice LaFlo, and Ben Spears, who's a woodworker. Me and my mom were already in the field of Montessori and Indian education, and we wanted to take the method of Montessori and indigenize it and start making it more culturally appropriate for Native children. So we worked with Ben as an artist to, uh, and then Ben also made some, um, he made some um, toddler sticks, some creator sticks for toddlers, right? So it's not the same, the same competitive purpose of playing creator's game, but for, uh, for developing body movements, right? And for children to connect the game. Um, so we were um, piloting different sorts of materials, um, both Montessori and then again with the Creator Sticks, not Montessori, just completely uh, traditional materials. That was a year-long pilot. And after that pilot, we incorporated into a LLC. Um, it took me about uh, six months to go from the pilot ending to kind of uh, setting up a somewhat of a business structure, I guess you could say. Um, in the pilot, we gave everything away because it was all grant funded. Mm -hmm. But um, of course, like that's not sustainable in a business. So um, that's where we came up with the one of one. Mm. So for every Nini Janis item we sell, we give one away. So there's the one of one part for the Nini Janis. But then as we um, incorporated into like a legal LLC, we also, um, you know, I do beadwork and Ben makes more than the creator sticks. He, like uh, my mom makes more than children's items, right? She's a, she's also a seamstress, and um, and we also had a lot of other artists that were contributing. Um, so we came up with the one of ones to sell our unique items that are one of ones. Um, so those are that's our fundraising aspect. That's kind of how the business model came together to keep the giveaways. 
um, we sell our one of ones and then 25% of those proceeds funds the giveaways. So it's kind of like a break-even model in a way. Um, We're able to keep that giveaway component because that's really valuable in our, in our culture and like generosity and giveaway culture. We wanted to keep that, but we're like, well, we don't have the same grants anymore to just give it all away. So we incorporated the one of ones to bring in more artists to make our impact larger because now we have more people on board helping with the fundraising and helping with the giveaways. Um, and we also get to really highlight artists through that one of ones model because, you know, artists and a lot of our work lives on through our artwork too and through our beadwork and our quill work. And I think of the Minnesota Historical Society has so much of our stuff in that basement and, um, if you're in one of those fellowships and you get to go down there, you get to learn about all that awesome mm. stuff. Um, but, you know, those things, uh, we speak to our generation seven seven away from us through a lot of our artwork and through a lot of our things that, you know, live beyond us. So that's kind of where the artist, the artist collective grew um, and took a phase outside of just early education and early childhood. Great. Great. Can you speak to the early education, early, early childhood part of the organization? Yeah. So um, again, I was trained in the Montessori method and um, my mother Janice, who's also one of the, the, the main advisors for the for our collective is also a Montessorian and she um, started the Montessori American Indian Child Care Center in the east side of St. Paul. Um, so I, really we were, she had this classroom, this amazing classroom already and we were like, well, how do we reach more kids, right? Because we don't, we could only have a cat in that classroom. Um, and so we were like, well, how do we pull things out of the classroom and put them in, in children's homes, right? Mm-hmm. How do we give them to families who maybe only have a head start on their reservation? Or maybe the head start doesn't even have enough space to serve all their, their young children, right? Um, so for those families who don't have things at home, where, where, where do we help them, right? About 30, so there's thirds. There's a third of students or a third of our kids that attend a program, right? Like a Head Start or a Montessori. Um, There's about a third of our our children in early childhood who are um, with family, friends, and neighborhood care. So maybe their grandma's with them during the day. Um, And then there's about a third of our, our, our young children who are just at home. When I say young children, I mean birth through kindergarten, right? They're not in school age yet. Um, So they're just at home. So we're like, well, how do we help like all of them, right? So when we develop these materials, um, they can be used in classrooms, right? Even non-native classrooms, they can go to so that other children can have an accurate learning experience about native culture, right? And what um, our, what we have in our curriculum. Um, then they could go to Head Starts on the tribal schools and they could also go into the homes of families, right? So we were trying to meet many needs um, with this model and we came up with a curriculum that goes with it that we ended up with in that first year. And we've continued to pilot more and more as we've grown. So the educational component is really just um, bringing the materials and the curriculum to those who can use it, right? Whether they're in a program or whether it's grandma or whether it's mom. We birthed in the pandemic. um, So we've lived online pretty much since the pilot. We've had to, you know, live online but we started doing virtual family nest as well, um, where we can talk about the materials and even way more than that, right? Like uh, the Powell Mobile is for the first year of life and it's really helping t- children develop their tracking skills. It's for infants who um, are l- really like developing their eyes still, right? Um, so the Powell Mobile, we use that mobile to talk about that developmental 
time, but we could also talk about the first year of life. What does the first year of life look look like for our children? Um, So then we started, it looks also like parent education, I would say, as well. So uh, just to clarify the Powell Mobile, is that like the the crib uh, situation that the kids look at? Yeah, yeah. So um, the Powell Mobile is is really for for babies, for infants who are um, still learning to see. Mm-hmm. Um, they're developing their eyes because, as you know, we're born, we can't quite see in color yet. Um, so when we we start seeing in color, but we we can't track yet either. So like we can't follow motions right away. Um, that all happens in like the first mm-hmm. month of life, right? Where where our children um, develop those parts. So the Powell Mobile is meant to be at about two weeks when they're starting to see in color. Um, but when they're also starting to track and move their eyes. So the Powell Mobiles, they dance, right? They're, they move. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helps with the tracking, right? And it's it's also beautiful and it's attractive. Yeah. It's aesthetically pleasing to babies so that they want to look at it. Um, and that's a, a big part of Montessori, right? Is that we, um, we're giving beautiful things to our children so that they're actually interested in them. And the good thing about the Powell Mobile um, is that it can live past the developmental stage for the cultural Right, because um, babies will maybe take their first steps and then able to start dancing if they come from a family of dancers, um, or even if they don't come from a family of dancers. Now the family has this mobile too, and has been again parent education. We don't we don't just give these things to the children. We work with the parents um, to make sure that they know how to use them or what the purpose is. Um, but now now parents have an idea of what what the powwow is, right, and how they can talk about those things with their children. So that power mobile, even though the specific developmental purpose is for eye tracking in the first month of life, the cultural purpose lives on, yeah. right? The cultural component of that power mobile lives on and through that child's childhood. And then, um, you know, they're developing like a healthy cultural identity, which, you know, um, carries us through life, um, especially as we get older and we start dealing with incidents of racism or, um you know, we're learning about tough things that happen to Native people, such as the boarding school eras, and that we come from, you know, people of, of people who are resilient, too. And so when children have that um, ingrained in them as children, then they don't have to spend their whole lives searching for it, you know, searching for their identities and who they are. And um, so that's where um, a lot of the cultural components fit in um, in, in why we do the education piece, right? Because um, we're not just... Uh, we're not just educating again, you know, early childhood is a collective wraparound. We see our children holistically in their development. I just found a picture of the power mobile on your yeah, Instagram. So- it's pretty, it's beautiful. I mean, it's just one of those super common items that you get for a baby. And why yeah. not? Why not start why not them off? Culturally <laughs> appropriate, right? Yeah. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Brooke LaFlo, founder of Nini Janis One of Ones, a social enterprise that aims at creating educational equity in early childhood for Indigenous children. So Brooke, you know, you talked a bit about how the organization got started. And can you talk a bit about your specific interest in this line of work? What was the motivation to get into it? Yeah, that goes, uh, so my journey has been very braided. It goes back a ways. So hopefully I'll try and give the short version. But my little brother was born when I was 13. 
Um, so there's a big gap between us. And he was a Montessori child. Um, he actually got a scholarship when he was two to the Montessori Training Center um, in Minnesota. They have a cornerstone. So they have the training center. There's one in Minnesota. And then they have a school. And that training center specifically has a um, an initiative where they're trying to bring Montessori to communities of color and cultural communities. Um, and when they started that, they were having more scholarship opportunities for kids, low-income families and kids of color. So that's how my brother got in. Um, and he was reading by the time he was four. He was just a phenomenal like little dude. And my mom really took to that, right? She's seen the difference between me and my big brother who were also, you know, completed college and did fine in school, but she's seen a difference between us and took her interest into Montessori. Um, so when she started her school, she was in her fourth or fifth year when I graduated college. And I was between um, going to med school or going into education because I knew my mom was going to have a job for me, <laughs> essentially, if I did go into Montessori. Um, and then Montessori ended up being um, a, a, a shorter route, like med school would have been another eight years for me. Montessori was a, a year and a half. So I was like, well, I, I'm passionate about this. You know, I can take my lived experience as a Native person into the field of education in a way that I couldn't do that in medicine. When I got to working with my mom um, is when I started ideating about, okay, how can I go to the next level? You know, my mom made this amazing, amazing Montessori, but we still only serve like 30 students, right? We were still only one classroom. So we're like, how do we expand this? How do we bring this to more people? How do we bring this to more um, community members, more children? Um, I did a lot of youth work growing up too. You know, I think my first, I did my first work study was doing reading core at my elementary school. So I was already um, in the field of youth work and it was kind of just a natural, a natural way to keep going. Are there any fond, you know, moments you've had that you like to share of like children being positively affected, you know, by these um, educational materials, uh, you know, and the work that your uh, business does? Yeah. So I think of um, when I was actually in the classroom before we kind of got into major Nini Janus things. Um, I think the one thing about that's really beautiful about the monastery method is that children find their own ways to do everything. And that was a moment, there was a time in my, when I was in the classroom where I really realized that. Um, we had this older kid, um, his name was Robbie. And he was super intelligent. He was reading also by the age of four or five, doing big big number work, right? Like doing addition and subtraction. And so in the afternoons, when the little ones took a nap, the older ones stayed up to do to do the big the big boy and girl work. And and my mom was like, "You really need to encourage Robbie to get to to do more reading and number work." And um, but he really liked to do art. Like he would do art all day. So that one time I encouraged him. I was like, "Hey, Robbie, do you want to do some more?" some more letters and more number work this afternoon. And um, his way of like answering that was he, um, he got the, the, the dough, the Play-Doh, and he started like rolling it into letters and numbers and he made his work that way. So it was really a eye-opening experience for me to say like, I can't dictate how children learn. Children will figure it out. You know, children have their own ways of doing things. And um so that's kind of the what I've lived on with um, with a lot of the materials too, right? Is they all have their intended purposes, but if children see them in a different light and they still learn from that, they're going to still, you know, take in that experience. I saw that you're trying to evolve the whole thing with a, a mobile 
education situation. Could you talk to us about that and how that's going? Yeah. So that was one of my original ideas when I first worked with my full time at my mom's Montessori. Um, I was like, we could put a classroom on a bus, you know, and because sometimes it's it's uh, with Montessori, it's easier seen than said, right? Like you have to come see this, this little, it's called the children's house, right? Like everything's their size, you know, it's their level, right? Like you have to go down and like kneel down to them, right? Instead of, because there's also even a power imbalance between adults and children. Um, so I was like, what if we made a mobile model of a Montessori classroom? Because um, some of the some of our work was also, at that time, different tribes around the country were starting to find Montessori. So our work as a collective was, how do we share this with all of our tribes? Um, how do we get them to be believers in the Montessori method as a tool for delivering culturally relevant education instead of everyone dictating us, right? Head Start dictates us. How do we do early childhood education? Um, but we're like, no, 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 no. We need to control that narrative, right? Um, and the the bus model will be the mobile model that we hope to share with tribal communities all over to, to show them that, you know, you can do this in a different way. You can do this in the way that fits your community's needs. You can do this with your language, you know, like you can do this um, in your cultural beliefs. Um, and, you know, it, it's possible, right? It's possible to use Montessori as a vehicle for delivering a more culturally um, relevant education. So that's kind of what we want to take the mobile bus on the road um, and do a reservation tour. Um, and the first year would kind of be like a pilot year too, is just making relationships with communities. Um, and, you know, again, we're in White Earth. The White Earth has multiple head starts. Um, so they might not need the same need or they might have the same needs as a community that doesn't have any, any early learning services yet, you know? Um, so working with communities in their own local capacities on, on helping them with the, what their needs are, um, but also giving them, you know, some of our materials and resources as a means to start relationships and help them, um, help them grow their own models. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today we're speaking with Brooke LaFleau, founder of Ninijanis One of Ones, a social enterprise that aims to create educational equity in early childhood for Indigenous children. Well, looking at your the timeline of Ninijanis... Mm-hmm. Can I just say I'm so impressed to see the growth of the organization in the past couple years. Thank you. I don't really have much to ask except how do you do it? <laughs> Is it you know, a good community of people pulling together to get it done? I mean, even the website is top-notch. Thank you. What's your oh, secret? <laughs> <laughs> I have a secret, <laughs> and it's actually public. I don't have kids. I actually don't have a child myself. So um, I've been able to dedicate a lot of my life and a lot of my time to this. Um, that would look very different if I did have my own kids, right? And I'm not an early childhood educator. I would only be homeschooling for, you know. Um, I do feel that auntie role right now. And that's probably a strong, um, strong reason why I've been so invested and engaged in it is because I don't have kids, but I still have a duty to children. Um, and that's how I've been able to live that out. But then just like the other part you said is a, a great team, right? Like there is a lot of people who have contributed to to our efforts, right? And whether it be they make a material and 
I talk to them and I write the curriculum, right? Are we co-write it and maybe they're leading on the material or um, they're just contributing the one-of-ones, right? We have a lot of artists who aren't in the education field or realm per se, um, but they can contribute their artwork um, and they do it that way. Um, and we're a pretty loose collective, which works out really well too. Um, some of the folks in our collective are out doing their own amazing things in life. Adrienne Benjamin is our, like, she's our master artist, I call her. Um, she does jingle dress making and, um, you know, she has her own network that when, we're, when she works with us, our networks can tap into each other in a way too. So um, that's also where we say there's a lot of collective building, right? Like we're doing, we're building an ecosystem around our children um, in a way that doesn't exhaust us, right? Like Adrian doesn't have to do this nine to five with me, right? If she only has this amount of time to give or this amount of materials to give, that's what she can give. Um, so I think that we're all in network together. We're all in community together. We all see it as a team effort. There's not, we don't really work on timelines, right? Like that could be stressful and it could like make for messy work sometimes um, that people, that people can do it in a good way because they're not stressed out, right? And I always say that, I was like, hey, we're doing this for our kids, you know? So remember that energy is going to be passed on to them. So I think that keeping that in the back of all of our minds has allowed us to do it in a good way and um, really allowed us to believe in it and um, share it and share it with each other and share it with others in our networks. Awesome. Um, very, very last question would just be like, what what are fun, some of your like more, you know, uh, what are some of the pieces that you like making? Like what's what's one of your favorites or things like that? Yeah, I, I love beading. I love beading. I have a, a long wait time. I could sit and bead for six to eight hours at a time. Whoa. Yeah, I know, right? I was like, that's why my back hurts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't have that same um, capacity for sewing. I can only maybe sew for an hour or two. Um, but beading is probably like my number one go-to. It's very like healing for me as well. Like when we talk about um, like trauma-informed art and how like, doing these things actually bring us like peace and well-being. Um, but then uh, the power mobiles too, again, since it's always popular, like I'm constantly, you know, I had got a cricket constantly cutting them out, trying to assemble them. Mm-hmm. We sell out of them almost every month. So, but then I also, again, I, I like to learn too. So um, there's other artists in the group. Adrian Benjamin taught me how to do jingle dresses. Right. So I'm, and that's also the, the best part of the collective is that we, we teach each other and there's a lot of um, co-creating going on. Very good. Well, you know, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Jimmy Gwich. Yeah, thank you guys. Gwich, Brooke. Gwich. Well, that was great. You can really hear the care and the passion for education. And of course, not just, you know, one plus one mm-hmm. education, but the entire child. And sometimes that can get lost when we're thinking about education. Mm. So it's really wonderful to see what she's doing, what Brooke is doing with this work. Yep. 
So thank you to Brooke LaFlo. She is the founder of Ninijanis One of Ones, a social enterprise that aims at creating educational equity in early childhood for Indigenous children. To find out more about their programs, visit their website, ninijanisoneofones.com. And as always, that link and more will be included in the show notes of this episode at minnesotanativenews.org. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Gigawabamin. Native Lights, Where Indigenous Voices Shine, is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.